Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Robin Wigglesworth is the Financial Times Global Finance Correspondent and the author of Trillions, the newly released book on the past, present and future of passive investing. In this episode, we discuss how Robin ended up in FT after several lucky breaks and serendipity, why he decided to write a book about the rise of index funds, the few investors Robin believe can beat the index game, his best advice for people trying to learn about the financial markets, and how he sees the future of index and ETFs. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Robin, thank you so much for joining the podcast. No, thanks so much for having me on. I wanted to start maybe a fun place, but you recently changed your Twitter name. I guess it was just for fun, but what did you do that? Yes, I, I think gimmicky Twitter names are a little bit silly. I see a lot of people do it around Halloween, change it to some, a spooky McWigglesworth or something. Uh, but I, I watched some of the video clips from Facebook's rebranding to Meta, and they were so ridiculous. I, I, it was too tempting to mock it. So yes, I changed my handle to Robin Metaworth, which actually does seem to work pretty well. Well, what do you think about the name change? And do you think it's obviously there are several thoughts going into this? I mean, obviously there's a rebranding, but it's also a, a big shift to the Web three platform and era. Yeah, I, I think. My mental model for name changes is that it's usually an act of desperation. It's when a company has kind of run out of ideas with what to do. Uh, oh, well, let's change the name. Uh, and clearly, so Facebook's fundamental challenge is that it's seen as a bit of a boomer platform, right? Young people are not on Twitter, on Facebook. And, and Facebook knows this and sees this as uh, you know, an existential threat. I think Facebook is going to be with us probably forever, but I can see why they worry. And with a name change like this, maybe they try to regain some of the edginess that they had in their early years. Uh, I don't see how, you know, I, I won't comment on the technical possibilities of like how far this can go and what time frame. Uh, but I struggle to think that uh, for the time being, this is going to help reinvigorate 
Facebook make it any more cool or any less of a target for various angry politicians and regulators around the world? It's going to be very interesting. We're going to talk a lot about your new book, of course, but just going back, how early did you find an interest in finance? Can you remember sort of the age or was it by coincidence? I can remember, well, I can't remember the exact date, but there was one very specific day when it happened. And the dirty secret of a lot of financial journalists, at least of my generation, is that we never cared about finance. We never did. Uh, you know, I grew up, I'm a you know, child of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I wanted to be a war correspondent, foreign correspondent. And I studied international relations. I studied history. I studied political Islam, a bit of international law. Um, and I was actually going to be a, a journalist in the Norwegian army because uh, we have conscription in Norway, as you know. And I thought that sounded a little bit more interesting. But I wasn't sure about journalism. But I did have a part-time job whilst doing my master's at the LSE at The Guardian, where essentially I did what is called sub-editing, but it's the lowest form of sub-editing. I was just making sure picture captions were correct and things like that. But I was doing night shifts, and The Guardian has a very good media section where lots of media jobs were, were posted. And idly one night I was reading through it, I saw there was a posting for a financial journalist in Dubai. And... I had actually no interest in financial journalism. We had had one city editor from one of the big English papers come to my journalism school to give a talk. And his sales pitch was essentially, you get to have really long, boozy lunches, which, you know, who doesn't like long, boozy lunches? But it's not what young idealistic journalist students want to hear, right? We want to change the world. We want to be war correspondents. Uh, but I didn't know anything about finance, but I wasn't sure about going back to Norway and I thought it could be interesting. I always like doing new things. I like challenges. I like learning stuff. And Dubai is the least Middle Eastern part of the Middle East, but I knew I wanted to go there. So I thought, screw it, I'll apply. And I was still very skeptical until I flew in. Yeah, absolutely awful salary. Put to work like a hamster immediately. But my very first day, I interviewed a local sheikh about Islamic reinsurance. Technically, it's called retakaful. Uh, because Islamic insurance is called takaful. And it is as wildly exotic as it sounds. But I just loved it. I just thought it was fascinating. Here I was, this guy who knew absolutely nothing, interviewing some local sheikh, sitting there in his thobe, talking about Islamic reinsurance and learning about like what the like what the you know Sharia says about financial principles and how you can reinterpret this in modern context and how this works in practice. And I was just hooked. So that's how I ended up in financial journalism, um, entirely by chance. And I did get to be a war correspondent for a brief period a little bit later, but uh, the first cut was the deepest. I mean, that's super interesting because uh, I was about to ask you about the question how you ended up in, in Dubai, but the question was also linked to the lessons learned between, I don't know, uh, skill versus luck, because you had like a great take on that as well. Yes, um, Look, I mean, it's popular to say that you, you make your own look and you can do that to a certain extent. But look, if I look at my own career with, you know, objective eyes, I've had lots of lucky breaks. Now, if, if I'd been useless at my job or utterly lazy, then I probably wouldn't be where I am now. There are, you know, there are a lot of really good journalists who are unemployed these days. This is a tough industry that's been basically in decline for several decades. So I do think I am proud that you know, I am where I am, but 
I'd be lying if I said I hadn't had many lucky breaks, like that job in Dubai. That was just pure chance that I was basically, I'm not quite lazy, but bored one night at The Guardian and was looking at the job ads. Uh, That job was not a great job, but actually was a great training ground because I just had to work my socks off. So I had to learn a lot about finance very early on. And other people have like a slower learning curve. Mine was steeper and it was intense, but that was quite good. And then I just happened to apply for a job at Bloomberg News because, frankly, they just needed anybody who was not an idiot and who spoke fluent Norwegian and English. So then I got a job covering Nordic economics for Bloomberg, again, purely because I was the right person at the right time. Then I applied for a job at the FT back in the Middle East. That's how I ended up here. And again, pure luck. I mean, essentially, I saw the FT was launching a Middle East edition. I wrote a cold email to the Middle East editor, Rula Khalaf, and misspelled her name in the email. She has not yet discovered that. Um, and said, look, hey, if you ever need anybody, um, yeah, I'd be really interested. I'd love the FT. Being a Middle East correspondent would be a huge dream. And she answered. And what I later learned as well is that Rula, and I love it a bit, she's just one of the best people I've ever worked with. She's now the editor-in-chief of the FT. But she's not great with email. And she'd had lots of applications from, frankly, more qualified candidates, people who spoke fluent Arabic, which I certainly didn't. But she just happened to be sitting in front of her email that day when I emailed. So she saw my CV. She thought, well, this guy looks fine and he'll probably be cheap. Let's just get him in. So then two weeks later, I was in back in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai. So again, it was luck. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that side of things because it's always easy to think of any success as your own triumph and every failure is somebody else's fault. And quite often there, there's serendipity or bad luck involved in both. Good point. I think you said previously that some part of, or some of the best part of working for FT is the freedom and flexibility. Are there other things that are truly a joy that makes it, makes working for FT like a great experience? Well, some of it is, you know, to be entirely honest, it's just, it's an ego boost. The Financial Times is a very prestigious newspaper and has luckily also made a fantastically successful transition to the digital era. So there's just this ego involved. It's it's undeniable. You're proud to work at such a prestigious newspaper. Uh, The flexibility, I mean, that varies a lot between jobs. The FT is definitely, I would say, more flexible than most other major uh, news organizations. Uh, Just by culture, it's always been a little bit that way. It's also hierarchy-wise, very flat. This is something that, you know, for a lot of Norwegians, we don't appreciate that much, but Norwegians are quite unhierarchical. Uh, we like having flat org structures, both in actual structure and in culture. You know, it's completely okay for you to joke around and, josh and joke with your boss. And the FT is quite similar as well, which just worked really well for me. That you, you know, There are limits, of course, but broadly speaking, you know, you work right next to all the top people and it's helpful and supportive and collaborative and that's just a great place to work so i really enjoyed that part as well uh i've had jobs that have been very unflexible and right now i'm lucky to have an insanely flexible job so long may that continue i mean that's probably also a reason why you're sitting in norway right now for the last years 
Exactly. I mean, so I was born and raised here in Oslo at Smirsta. Um, and, you know, I didn't know if I'd ever come back home, but then I had kids. And there's a bit like, you know, salmon swim upstream to lay their eggs where they were born. I think most humans are a little bit the same. I had suddenly was overcome with a near biological urge to have my kids grow up roughly where I grew up as well. But more importantly, to grow up close to their grandparents. I had just phenomenal grandparents who I was very close to. And I wanted my kids to have that same relationship. Uh, so my wife and I, we were in New York at the time, but we felt, you know, let's move by the time our daughter basically was going to start school. And, and luckily the FT agreed I think they would have preferred me to do one of these roaming correspondent jobs from the mothership in London or New York or, or Hong Kong. But in reality, you know, I said, look, if I'm going to have to travel a lot, then we need childcare. And if I'm in Oslo, it's free in the form of grandparents. And if I'm going to cover the world, like, you can just as easily do it from Oslo. And the FT is fairly flexible and, and progressive and things like this, even before the COVID era. But I, I will say that as, as nightmarish as COVID was, it did kind of, it helped prove that this model works. Because I think it was working for me even before COVID, but it required me really working my ass off, really, to kind of prove that this is, this is fine. You won't even notice I'm not actually in the office office. But when COVID hit, it kind of proved to everybody that this is completely viable. And I'm a, I'm a pro office person, but I think that's you know, something that we should maybe all remember that not all jobs have to be in the office. Some jobs probably should. And I, you know, I, I miss colleagues having them in person, but, but I'm glad I can be here in, in the FT's headquarters at Mangledu. Let's dive into, into your book. Uh, I mean, how early did you had, how early did you get the idea of writing it and what set you off to actually say, okay, I'm going to write this book. Uh, a little bit serendipity. Uh, so at the FT, you know, we're not, we don't have as many journalists, the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. So you have to kind of be focused. Focus is really important in a lot of jobs. But I think especially with journalism, where just by the nature of the beast, you're always flitting from one subject to the next. So you have to focus on what the big stories are and just own them, really do well in them. And for me, when I was sort of leading the financial coverage in New York, so the U.S. markets editor, um, the rise of passive investing index funds was clearly and obviously one of the biggest, if not the biggest trend that was reshaping financial markets, investment bank trading desks, the investment industry, hedge funds, and so on. It was a topic that everybody had views on. And I just thought that's a great topic. So I threw myself into learning as much about it as possible and, and writing a lot about that. After a few years of doing this, I decided I wanted to really get stuck into the, the origin story of index funds. Um, and, you know, partially because I was a history buff, but I thought there could be a good story there. Because sometimes, you know, you start a story, start researching something, and it's really boring. Or it just doesn't work. You can't structure it right. But luckily, the people that invented index funds were really cool, interesting people. So suddenly you had the combination of like an important story and an interesting story. So you put those two together, you've got hopefully at least a very good article. So I wrote a magazine piece for the FT um, magazine, Weekend Magazine, long, it's a 4,000 word piece on the history of index funds and how they're changing everything essentially. And as I was writing, I did think, you know, actually this, this is my article is quite good. I'm quite critical 
quite a lot of stuff I hate that I write, I end up hating very quickly. But I thought this was interesting and good. This might even be a book. And as it happens, out of the blue, I got called by my agent now, uh, Julia, who said, hey, this would make a great book. Can I sell it for you, please? And I said, yeah, go ahead. And she basically took it around to some big publishers in the US, uh, managed to get several bids. And, uh, you know, I went with Penguin. And uh, again, shows a bit of luck. I might have written a book anyway, but Julia emailing me at exactly the right time and then selling the book just as publishers were thinking this is maybe something we should publish something on was just you know, blind luck. I mean, it's a people-driven book. So can you please introduce those pioneers and tell us something about, about them? Yes, I try to do as much about people as possible, partially because it's almost a gimmick of journalism in that like, people like reading about other people. So you can kind of explain more complex subjects through the prism of people. Sometimes it can be forced, but in this case, I just didn't have to because the characters were really interesting. Uh, I mean, I start the story of indexing with um, one of my favorite characters, which was Louis Bacalier. And he's one of my favorites because he basically died a nobody. And I love some stories. I mean, they're quite tragic, but people that essentially died in obscurity were never appreciated in their own time, but were later recognized as giants of their field. And Bacalier is today known as the father of financial economics. And a lot of the work that he did on how stocks seem to move randomly is the wellspring from which index funds eventually, many, many decades later, sprung. So his work was then picked up by you know, more famously people like Gene Farmer, who turned the random walk theory into a sort of full-blown theory for how markets function, the efficient markets hypothesis, which is controversial just because Everybody can see stupid stuff happen in markets all the time, both on individual stocks, day-to-day basis, or just in the fullness of time that, you know, the financial crisis or meme stocks or, you know, Tesla today, maybe. Um, So people often like to bash the efficient markets theory, ignoring, firstly, that Farmer has done seminal work on the fat tail risks of markets. He has shown how markets do tend to move kind of irrationally as well in the short run. And sometimes in the long run, the distribution is non-normal in the economics jargon. But also because models are just a yet helpful tool. So uh, there's a statistician called George Box who once said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think the efficient markets theory is a perfect example of that, that you can find tons of faults with it. It's probably wrong in a classic sense that markets aren't perfectly efficient or even semi-efficient. But it's a good enough guide to explain how markets function in that prices continue to reflect all known information and misinformation for that matter. Uh, and that keep, keep getting baked into the price. And at any given time, the price of a security is roughly where an equal number of buyers and sellers think is fair. And it's very hard, therefore, to beat in the long run. So both explained how market pricing kind of works, but also why maybe it might be a good idea to just buy or create a fund that buys all the stocks in the market rather than just try to expensively buy just the hot ones, the ones that you think are going to be hot. At this time, I think you say in the book, it's, it was a very un-American idea like to kind of make people understand how disruptive the idea was. Can you tell us a bit about the feedback the guys were getting at the start, at least? 
Well, it was a mix of howls of derision, mockery, scorn, and a little bit of anger. But frankly, like in the beginning, the idea was so outlandish that the industry really didn't care that much. Uh, so I think it's, it's definitely sort of antithetical to how Americans see themselves, but kind of antithetical to human nature, right? We all want to do better. Nobody wants to be a mediocre journalist. Nobody wants to be a mediocre podcast. Nobody wants to be a mediocre surgeon. Nobody wants to be a mediocre dustbin cleaner, right? We want to be better at what we do. It's kind of why humans have managed to crawl out of the mud and do what we've done. Uh, and it's certainly in America, like the idea of like being the best uh, is just very heavily ingrained. And embracing mediocrity, as index funds were sort of called, it wasn't just seen as lazy, it was seen as un-American. And people even printed up posters saying, stamp out index funds, they are un-American. Um, but at the beginning, people just didn't think this would ever be able to be sold. And of course, it took many decades for ordinary people to sort of cotton onto this big secret that actually most active managers do a really poor job and cost a lot of money. It was no coincidence that it was the more sophisticated investors, primarily some of the really big US pension plans, that were the first people to bankroll the very first index funds. This was an institutional game, not an ordinary retail investor game. Because they could see, this is typically the different pension plans of the split up AT&T monopoly. It used to be a monopoly, it was split up into different parts, uh, all called baby bells. Um, they could see, they were exchanging notes, and they could see, look, you've invested in 50 fund managers, we've invested in 50 fund managers, and all these guys are doing is essentially swapping IBM stock or GM stock or, or Xerox stock and doing a really bad job and costing a lot of money in trading costs because trading costs were astronomical at, at the time. So overall, we're just basically hiring, as I think somebody said, hiring a bunch of monkeys that are just swapping bananas all day long and taking charging a lot of money. How about we just index? So that's how it started. Uh, but it took many decades before it really sort of erupted into it and became a phenomenon. If we fast forward today, I, I don't know if I uh, remember the correct amount, but is it something like 80 cents per dollar goes goes into index nowadays? Or It varies a lot between asset class to asset class. So that definitely sounds right in equities. In fixed income, it's not been that much until very recently. So right now, I think fixed income ETFs and, and index funds, bond ETFs and ETF index funds have taken up quite, but it is a lot. So overall, the official number, as it were, of how much money is in known index funds, a classic fund structure, either an index fund or an ETF sold by BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street is $17 trillion. So that's just monumentally big. But even that understates how big this is. Because a lot of investors, including, I suspect, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and a lot of big pension plans, they don't really need to pay somebody else to do something that's pretty simple. So they have their own internal index strategies that aren't a fund, but still basically do exactly the same thing. And there are no, there's no good data uh, on, on this globally. But to reverse engineering some data I managed to pick up here and there, and with some assumptions on growth rates, I estimate that we're talking at least $26 trillion are in index strategies overall. 
just uh, maybe a simple question, but for people who aren't that into finance, I think it's important just to just to talk about it. The difference between an index fund and an ETF. How would you describe those two concepts and how they overlap? No, it's well? a good. Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And sometimes, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people from the finance industry get some of the nitty gritty stuff uh, wrong as well or get confused. I mean, God knows I do as well occasionally. Um, so, I mean, a fund is just basically a collection of financial securities. And throughout history, uh, most big investment vehicles have, or certainly over the past 100 years, have been mutual funds. So they're mutually owned. So you give your money to a mutual fund, they have a portfolio manager and some traders and some analysts and trying to pick the best stocks. Index funds have the same legal structure, but they just bought all the stocks in an index according to that index weight. ETFs are the next generation of that. So I kind of, depending on how you slice and dice revolution, indexing 2.0 or 3.0. An ETF is basically just an index fund that trades throughout the day is the simple answer. The slightly more complex answer is that it is very different in structure in that it's essentially like a legal wrapper, like a bag, essentially, where you can put lots of stuff in and then you create shares in that bag, create or destroy shares in that bag, depending on demand, all day long, and those shares trade on an exchange. But that means that although people associate ETFs, exchange-traded funds, so funds that trade on an exchange, exchange, with passive investing, and it is how they were born, they were initially invented to, you know, track passive index funds, um, you can do anything with them pretty much. You can put all sorts of stuff into that bag, including some pretty crappy stuff, which is the danger. But essentially the short answer is ETFs are tradable index funds that trade like a stock on some exchange, public exchange. Agree. Uh, obviously you have met so many people in finance. Is there anyone that you haven't met yet that you will like die for have a lunch with? Oh, yeah, Jim Simons at Medallia at Renaissance. He's my sort of, um, he's my, my white whale. Um, he, he was a, a just fascinating guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was a you know, brilliant mathematician, specialized in geometry. That doesn't sound like, you know, we all did some geometry at school, but this is sort of multidimensional, very hardcore geometry. He still has like, you know, you know, could in theory win the Nobel Prize apparently at some point. Um, but then worked as a code breaker for the Department of Defense during the Cold War. Then basically because of the Vietnam War, he cut it, he like caused a bit of a huff, so he got fired. You know, this is a guy that went like motorcycling down all of the Americas into Latin America until they ran out of money and then kind of hitchhiked all the way home to, to the US. You know, it's a pretty, you know, colorful character, chain smoker. But then he was a brilliant mathematician and thought you could use maths and computers to trade and invest better. And it took many years, but he managed to collect, you know, probably the greatest collection of non-investor investors in the history of the world. And, you know, Renaissance's long-term track record, like Renaissance's public funds, which don't have like all the, the sexiest strategies are in medallion, it's in-house fund, but still have done phenomenally well, had a stinky 2020, but still, you know, he's just an interesting guy who by far has had made the most amount of money of any investor in history through investing. 
and also just you know he gives lots of money to democrats he finances scientific studies around the world he's just an interesting guy though you know his chain smoking might be a little bit off-putting i still love to have a lunch with the ft with him someday couldn't agree more um it's been so much fun having you on just final question where can people contact you yes find your book is it twitter the best way do you have a web page or yeah if you google robin wigglesworth then you know that the upside to having such a weird harry potter-esque name is that there aren't that many other people with robin wigglesworth uh so it's literally like robin wigglesworth.com is the website you can see the book there and the links to various pre-orders though if you just google trillions and wigglesworth yeah there aren't that many other hits that come up and yes i spend way too much time on twitter so yeah definitely hit me up there uh send me an email as well if you have any questions or criticism or you know hot stock tips i love hot stock tips i'm only joking i hate them definitely don't email me about crypto that's the one thing anybody who emails me about crypto goes in my big fat book of grudges uh and i take that quite seriously um but yeah i'm all over the internet sadly so uh, you can't say that about crypto without uh explaining a bit ah uh. Oh God, that's yeah. I, I might go on an even bigger rant than I do about day trading, but it's kind of the same thing. Look, I, I'm a technological optimist. Like my colleagues tease me. Like I mostly cover like quants as well, like Jim Simon. So I love technology and anything new. Like basically, I've never seen anybody do something completely useless with technology that I haven't instinctively loved. But years after looking at this, I fail to see any real meaningful use case for any crypto project I've seen so far. That yes, I get that there is some cool aspects of blockchain that you can use in many ways, but I still fundamentally think it's a very elaborate way of doing something that we could do with like an Excel sheet uh, or certainly some next gen Excel, Excel sheets. So I struggle with that. I think it's an entire industry built around one single purpose, which is making people afraid of losing out and taking advantage of their greed to suck more money in so the early investors can make money. Uh, there's a word for that kind of scheme that I try to avoid because all the crypto bros get very mad at me and say, have fun staying poor, that I'm salty and all that. But fundamentally, I just, I've yet to see any use case. It still looks like, it just still looks like shit. And it is even if some parts of it end up being useful and good and valuable and maybe even revolutionary, there is so much bullshit and outright crookedness and frauds around that, that it's impossible to take the entire space seriously until it cleans up its own act. You know, people are bombarding people with internet ads and, and ads on the subway and train and, and airplanes to buy this coin and that coin. I mean, now the latest one is Floki. Like people have literally named a bullshit shitcoin after elon musk's dog that's raised millions already and they say it's going to be in a, a floki ecosystem and it's going to be e-gaming and the metaverse and they're just throwing bullshit marketing terms out there to lure dumb people to think well i might as well put, i missed out on dogecoin you know that was like a really big serious thing maybe i should put like a couple of thousand kroner on that and it's all bullshit and it's just people finding a new way of parting your money, you from your money and shifting into their own pockets. And I think it's at best distasteful and at worst outrageous that regulators haven't done more to protect people from their own greed in this case.
So yeah, that is my very nuanced uh, view on crypto. Uh, it's very popular, I can tell you, with all my colleagues and, and friends under the age of like 40. It's very much my boomer, my, my boomer hill to die on. I mean, we'll have to save that for part part two to go <laughs> into everything you said there. But Robin, anyway, it's been so much fun having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck with the book publishing as well. No, thanks, Christopher. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for goading me into saying mean things about crypto as well. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.